Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. One hundred episodes of One Hundred and One Part Time Jobs, the podcast where I speak to bands, musicians, artists about their story of survival, how they've managed to keep on doing what they do, and the stories they've had along the way. Before I introduce Courtney Taylor Taylor, which, by the way, is absolutely nuts that he's come onto this podcast, I am delighted to announce that to celebrate, to commemorate 101 episodes of 101 Part Time Jobs, and that 101st episode is coming tomorrow. I've done a book, a 35-page 
illustrated book of a selection of excerpts of stories from the first 101 episodes, including stories from John Darnielle from The Mountain Goats, Jeff Rosenstock, Izzy B. Phillips from Black Honey, Kevin Morby, Hey Colossus, Thurston Moore, and a dozen others. You can order that now at 101parttimejobs.com. It's $12.99, free postage in the UK. I should be getting them in the post next Wednesday, and I'll be sending them out immediately. So click onto 101parttimejobs.com, have a gander. I've got some screenshots up there. And if you'd like to buy one, you can. We got Courtney Taylor Taylor of the Dandy Warhols for the 100th episode. During lockdown, he's been making these 30 second songs. You can find them on their website, dandywarhols.com. And for today's episode, he told me about some of the early part-time jobs he had before the dandies, as well as 25 years of the Dandy Warhols and some of the tales that they've had to endure along that way. Shout out to East London Signature Brew. They've been making music-inspired beers since 2011. They've made collaboration beers with the likes of Mastodon, Idols, Sports Team, Slaves, and a whole bunch more. If you live in the UK, you can order from their website, signaturebrew.co.uk, and using the voucher code 101 podcast, all capitals, you can get 10% off your order. All right. Thank you so much for listening. 100 episodes. Mental we got here. Here's Courtney Taylor Taylor from the Dandy Warhols, who I think I woke up for this interview. And I think they had had a big night at the auditorium in Portland, their space, the night before. Thank you for listening. Go well. Cheers! Everybody together. I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to find some power source for this fucking computer because, um, you know, there's a good chance it'll die because that's just that's how my life works with uh, modern technology. Yeah, I, I, I feel I, I'm, I'm with you. I detest it. I don't. I don't do social media at all. Any of it. And uh, yeah, I, I just. Well, you, uh, you're good at updating the website, though. I appreciate that. I have a team of people that do that. Uh, I see. Yeah, I see. I'm not me, man. I, I got better things to do with my life. Like smoke pot and stare out the window. Brushing <laughs> my teeth is better than that. <laughs> do you live in the studio? No. In that no, block? No, definitely not. Yeah, I, I, people ask me that, and, I, and I, I always used to say, no, I am a person who likes to be able to leave the party. Yeah important and that's that's important we used to have really hellacious ragers in there i mean 150 150 200 people i mean that's what you know we have we have three bathrooms not one shower not one bed and that's why same reason kind of smart not having a bed i feel like if people see a bed they're gonna lay they're gonna fuck in it they're gonna sleep in it they're gonna vomit pass out drunk and throw up you know i mean gross anything could happen how did you get people to leave uh you turn the music off and you turn all the lights on (laughs) 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 yeah what yeah yeah (laughs) and it's a you know it's a warren of of like rooms and nooks and crannies and shit so it you got to make it pretty uncomfortable to get completely hammered cokeheads out of your studio at you know 5 a.m or whatever how do you keep the the expensive equipment separate out of the way i don't know i i don't really know i mean we have all our gear there 
I mean, it's all in road cases. So right. we thought we might want to go to the Bahamas or something. And of course that, <laughs> you know, that never, that never happened. Our, the fabulous part of our lives ended about a year after I had built the studio. It's just been sitting there, but it means we can cut, you can cover everything. Mm. Covers on the mixing board and all the rack mounts of, of gear and, and yeah. stuff. So that's, and then, all, you know, behind the gear is where you really can't go back there unless you're going to gingerly tiptoe around cables and stuff like that. And that's where the things, you know, expensive things that can fit in your pockets, like, yeah. like microphones. And so we, we haven't even had things leave that studio that we wish would leave the studio. Yeah, every five years we have to have a, a thorough uh, cleansing of just the crap that accrues. You know, there's so much crap in that place. I mean, ten thousand square feet is is just a, that's a lot. It is a lot of room. If you if you turn your phone off and set it down somewhere, you can forget it. It'll take days. That's great. That's what I want to do. I need that. I need that in my life. Yeah, I get accused of doing that on purpose every now and then. Every apartment in London is small. You don't get, well, every apartment that I've ever been to. But yeah, Courtney, thanks. You know, again, thanks so much for being up for this. You know, it's a podcast that, you know, my old band toured a lot. And I just it got to the point where it was so sad that it was funny. All the kind of shit jobs I was picking up between tours. Um, what was the name of that band? Great Cynics. We we toured the East Coast. We did house show tours down the East Coast. Um, we were kind of like a Lemonheads, Billy Bragg. You know, that was our kind of dream to, you know, artists that we kind of wanted to emulate, I suppose. But Evan, Evan Dando, you shoot a lot of smack, which is always good. Good way to, you know, keep a band together. Far you more. shoot a lot of smack. Far more innocent. Did Evan Dando ever have any, you know relaxed years do you reckon did he have any innocent years i don't i don't know i mean you know when i produce young bands and i have you know bands of new bands you know and they find their way to the studio and want to hang out want to talk to me about music help me produce a record and stuff like that um you know you can always tell which ones are the super hipster kids that you know think keith richards and kurt cobain and all those, you know, guys were so cool and shoot dope. And I always have to just pound it into their skulls. Like, okay, if you're going to be a junkie, you can be a junkie after you've made your first million. Okay. Mm. You can do whatever you want. Make your first million. You can just, you know, you can do whatever you want. Go out in a blaze of glory or whatever you think it is. But, you know, you can't, you can't be a mess. So I would imagine that, you know... I would imagine that everybody who, every junkie, every famous junkie had to get some work done before they became a junkie. In those early days, I remember from basically the year the band started, for 10 years, I noticed that I had one friend die of a heroin overdose, at least one every year for the first 10 years. Not not close close friends, but people that I would see that we you know hung out together and yeah. our bands had played together and we were part of the same scene. You know, it was a small town, so we everybody knew each other and hung out all the time. And they just started 
dropping off. But those were generally speaking of uh, you know you're talking about part-time jobs and stuff. I mean these were the these were the cats that that didn't really like to have jobs at all. You know, I'm thinking back on over them and I don't remember any of them um being able to hold a job or or really even wanting a job. I think generally they were pretty pretty f- unprepared people for the real world. Um, a lot of times they were really exceptionally good looking people and and unusually bright um, and probably got a lot of uh, ass kissing in high school and when they were young and um, and really allowed to maybe work less hard than um, other other people and that kind of didn't really set them up for a lot of you know, inner strength or, or self dependence. Where did you fit into that equation? You know, I was such a loner and, and I was, I, I read, uh, I, I was a, I was a very poor student, but, um, I was bright enough that I would get luckily stuck into advanced placement courses that didn't have everyday homework situations. They just had big tests and write uh, essays on great works of literature historically. So uh, when I was about 14 or 15, um, we read Death of a Salesman. And I that changed my life. I was absolutely scared to death of just aging um, as a poor worker guy. I didn't want to be Willie Loman. I was, I didn't want to be Hap or Biff or Willie. I didn't, I just was horrified and and frightened. So, uh, I worked, I don't think I ever had, um, less than two part-time jobs at any given time. I just worked constantly. I worked, I I wanted to have cash in my pocket. I always had a phone an apartment and a, and a car. I became a Volkswagen, part-time Volkswagen mechanic, and I always had a Volkswagen bus. Yeah, I did that just by hanging out at this uh, shop called Big Hippie Repair, and they just worked on vintage German cars, um, and uh, I just hung out with on my free time to keep learning more and more and more. I was always a Volkswagen fan driver, you know, that was my first car, and um, until I really started making enough money to drive nice cars. I was a Volkswagen van guy for the entirety of my, my life. But I just hung out there until they started giving me work, you know, they just the jobs they didn't want to do. Um, you know, the tubes that, that hold your brake lines in place get filled up with road grime and stuff. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, like the brake line, her brake line snapped on her, you know, 78 cabriolet or 81 cabriolet or whatever. So (laughs) you want to do it, you know, give you 20 bucks an hour to dung out or brake lines and, you know, do that kind of garbagey stuff. So you got some firsthand experience of seeing an honest mechanic. Very honest, honest mechanics. I mean, they were, 
no, they didn't. They didn't waste time. They didn't overcharge anyone. They were they were just cool guys, and they were all they all had a styly look, and I loved that. That they were, you know, like oh, there's the Fugazi looking kid, you know, that is mm. super super genius, uh, you know, manic depressant, uh, bores out engines. You know, that they, you know, you've got cylinders, right? And yeah. if you want more power, you can bore them out. But you, you, if you bore them out too much, um, because there's explosions under high pressure in those cylinders, uh, it'll crack the head. It'll actually crack the, the metal. So you can't bore them out too much or the, the metal gets too thin. It's, you know. And there was this kid that was like 16 years old, and he was a genius from Benson Technical School. And, uh, yeah, he was in and out of the hospital quite a bit, um, you know, dealing with depression. And I remember I would, I would give him like Herman Hesse novels and, you know, just things to get his mind. Cause I, I thought, I always just thought, you know, that if you're depressed in your, you know, in your late teens, um, going and have, be having to lie in a institutional room for weeks as though that's going to help you, you know, like, come on. So I, I would narcissist and Goldman, narcissist and Goldman. And yeah, beneath the wheel, Peter Cameron's and and Stephen Wolf and obviously Sid Hartha. Yeah. That's a nice thing for you to do as a friend. I was impressed with him. You know, I, I really, I really thought it was cool. It, yeah. We always listened to great music, you know, I mean, it was, that was a great part-time job for me, the doing that a couple of days a week. Um, and you were playing music around that time. Yeah, that was kind of before, right before the dandies and then into the first year or so. And then we got signed to Capitol and we were just gone. And then, but when Peter and I were putting the band together and, and playing shows in, you know, cafes and little punk bars and stuff, um, we also worked for a swing band as their two roadies nice. and they had this, you know, like Ford Astro van and it had no seats in the back. It just had the two seats in front and it was literally packed to the ceiling front to back with all their equipment. And it was our job to drive out to wherever the wedding was going to take place. Just come over, leave our, leave our, uh, our car, leave the our leave the Volkswagen van at in front of the guitarist's house. Get into that van, drive it out to Hood River or you know North Portland or wherever, uh, and and load in all this equipment: their PA, their lights, the guitar gear, the keyboardist gear, the drum set. Set the whole thing up, me and Pete, and sound check it all in you know eq get the mix correct you know and then uh and then um just blow off until two in the morning when we would go back so we got to go see gigs and then but we never got to party after like we'd go see oasis at satiricon you know and and uh you know we put on our mod suits and get our hair all styled out and you know and then uh rumpled correctly and then go put our t-shirts and jeans back on 
and our work boots, and we would go and drive back out to wherever. And, and so you knew how to set up a PA. You, you talk about EQ, that stuff. You know, did you teach yourself that stuff? No, I, I well, I did for years. Um, there, when I was young, when I was in my early teens, they invented the four-track cassette recorder, multi-track. Uh, recording home recording you know just a little tiny thing the size of a laptop like five laptops stacked on top of each other right you put a cassette in there and and then instead of it being you know side one left and right side two turn it over side two left and right it was all four tracks one direction some genius figured that out so i had one of those at home and then i had taught myself a little guitar and i was a drummer so i had learned how to play some basic guitar stuff. And then, um, I swapped my karate instructor, uh, drum lessons for, uh, karate lessons. And he just gave me his guitar cause he didn't want to be a drummer. He didn't want to play guitar. He's like, I don't like it. I want to be a drummer. So he bought a drum set. So I had a guitar and then, um, you know, I bought a microphone and digital delay pedal and just kind of started recording at maybe 14 years old and trying to write simple songs and but playing the drums in other people's bands so i never really had to ever think about playing my music for anyone but myself it was just me alone at night you know in my parents house recording during the day and then at night i would kind of mix it and just smoke pot and try to get it perfect and lay there do vocals at night and not finished lyrics, just shovel him up the last of Shuba, you know, kind of mm, lyrics. Yeah, yeah. And then put some delay on it. And I could just make exactly what I was capable of uh, making that I would like and, and that would be satisfying for me. So, you know, 10 years later, I 12 years later, I put the dandies together. And that's my first band playing um, guitar and singing because, uh, boy, that was frightening and really quite pathetic at first, but I had so much experience in recording. And then I had also gone to music college and it was a, it was a heavy jazz school, um, in North Portland, which is where all the jazz clubs were. And it was, there weren't really, I think, I think there were, there were maybe two or three other white kids in that, in that, in that program. Um, but they had recording engineering, so I learned more technical, um, big studio stuff. But I had already understood the job of fitting sounds together and making sounds more interesting and, and doing, you know, great rock has always been driven by great studio experimentation. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, had, I had learned that at home and then i learned all the technical straight guy stuff uh how to kind of just make a professional or or at least some semi-pro sounding record in a yeah. real studio but it's you know it was jimmy hendrix cutting his or jimmy page cutting his speakers and miking that up you know john lennon going in to make uh sergeant peppers and saying telling jeff emmerich that um we're not going to put mics anywhere that they've ever been put before. We're not going to mic any, anything up 
in the professional traditional way we're going to have to learn to use what would be considered bad sounds mm. and that made everything more interesting so there's um that that was all stuff i i learned at home and i i put myself through that jazz college by working part-time at uh, a a chain of um you know the little convenience stores called plaid pantry <laughs> and uh Portland being a declining population, you know, dirt hole of a town. Um, there were lots of flaky people that were working uh, at at this, you know, myriad. There must have been 200 at least of these around the Portland and s- suburb areas. So that I had a phone and, and a car meant that I could basically work anytime I had nothing to do. I could just call them up and say, hey, I'm available until 11. You know, I could call them at 2 in the afternoon and they'd go, great, we've had a manager who's been at blah, 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 store 118 for, you know, 22 hours. He's he's trapped in there. He can't leave. He can't go, you know. (laughs) So can you get out there and and work until 10? And then we've got a guy who said he can show up in 10 and work the graveyard shit, you know. Perfect. Yeah, so that was probably the most – smooth job because if they called me i could just go no man i got a big party to go to tonight you know like i can't work bro so um uh that was a good one working at those five and dimes is is uh well i guess not a five and dimes convenience store but that was a good one that's that's how i paid for college man that was just community college, you know, it was it was cheap to begin with. And if you don't take tests and you don't care about getting a degree, it the price came down even farther. So I think it was I think it was about three hundred and seventy-five bucks a term to to do what's called auditing. Right? What does that mean? That just means you go sit in the back and you just listen, you know, and that's it. You just learn. You don't take the tests. You don't get a grade. It doesn't apply to any other call. You just, it's like you don't exist. You just get to walk in and sit in the back and listen for free, basically. 375 bucks a term for as many courses as you want to take. So I would take a full load of everything I thought I was going to need to, to know um, to, to write songs and be a deep enough person to have some actual meaning and perspective in my songs in lyrics as well that's what i'm talking about is lyrically is just try to not come across like an idiot and because i i understood at least well enough to know that you've if you're dishonest in songwriting the people you want to uh attract and, and relate to you and find you through your music will not find you if your songs suck, you know, like if you, if they're just filled with cliches and, you know, banal sort of little, you know, things you've ripped from other songs and things about, you know, dumb ideas about love and baby, you hurt me so bad and whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, the things that young people tend to obsess on the most. Uh, so I, I just wanted, so I took philosophy, sociology, you know, layout of an argument, 
I took introductory statistics. I took sociology, uh, history of Western civilizations, um, women in literature, poetry, improvisational theater. I mean, I just went for it. Studio photography, darkroom photography, filmmaking. You know, I took everything I needed to to do this job that I ended up doing with my life. Wow! So you were you were prepared. I thought I was. You know, I was I was prepared for the art part of it. I wasn't prepared for any of the you know what we're doing right now. I was horrible <laughs> at it. I was, you know, I would show up drunk. I would show up hungover. I was a potty mouth jerk. You know, I. I, that's one thing they don't have in college is how to find a good manager who can train you how to be a PR person for your own artistic endeavor. I see. And so I failed miserably and I was gullible and, you know, people could talk me into doing anything and then film it and then edit it later and make me look like a really way worse person than I actually am. And I was pretty sloppy. You know, I wasn't, you know, I was a pretty arrogant, sloppy jerk anyway. So it wasn't hard. But um, as far as the art stuff, you know, I can look back on all of the dandies, uh, the, the videos and the, mm. um, and the music and, and anything that, you know, I was... Uh, that I that was my project, my video to direct, or you know the, the my production. I, I look back on it, and it all is. It's just I love it. I think it's great work, and it's it's at least what I consider great work. And I'm not. Yeah, everything you've done has a has a great feeling about it. Thanks, man. Yeah, I meet a lot of other musicians who go, "Oh God, our early work. Oh, I don't even, can't even listen to those. Oh, you know." They, they can't listen to their own records. Like, why did you make them to 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 make it? You know. But have you ever gone through you know a dark period or or maybe kind of you know relinquished that artistry to to give it to someone else? No, never, never. Um, we did get a couple times. Things were taken away from us. Um, we, uh, the record Welcome to the Monkey House was actually finished and was called The Dandy Warhols Are Sound. And, uh, we had, you know, lived in New York City for a couple months and worked at Jimi Hendrix Studio with Russell the Dragon Elevato, who was, you know, a very exclusively urban producer. And, um, and, and really a, a visionary and, and one of the best in, in history. He was amazing. And that record, you can probably find it out there somewhere. I think we forced the issue in it and managed to put it out, maybe even illegally ourselves, I don't know. But uh, it got taken away. Uh, the, a new president in the middle of that two months, a new president at, at, at Capitol Records, and he comes in to check on us because we had just sold a million and a half records of, of 13 Tales from Urban Bohemia. Um, so with with absolutely no support from the label. So he was, what is going on here? Everybody loves this band. You know, and he, 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 why? He doesn't understand why. You know, we're not slick. We're not this. We're not that. Um, you know, 
So he comes in, he listens to this urban record that we that we're almost finished with, and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, I hear all your reference points. Yeah, you're cool. This is cool. You guys are real cool. No one's going to play this on radio. It's not black. It's not white. What is it?" And I said, uh, "You mean like Eminem, Elvis?" And he goes, "Come on, you're not Eminem or Elvis, okay?" <laughs> right. So he. Uh, How did you respond to that? I, you know, you just, I don't, I don't remember. I was so enraged. I mean, I have no memory of anything past that moment of that conversation. Some, I think what happened was Peter said, well, why don't you just remix a single for different radio styles? And he goes, is that okay? Is that okay with you guys? And I, and I, I, I just remember looking at Peter because he would be the last one. Peter is the stodgiest, like, you do not touch our shit guy, you know? Like, he's not even going to cooperate. Peter is definitely, like, he's even more just my little bubble than I am. And so when Peter, I remember, I remember Peter, the only part I really remember is him going, okay, when, when the president said, Dude said, um, pick a mixer, pick a mixer, you know? And he goes, okay. I think Peter said, okay. And so I just went, wow. If Peter says, okay, okay. Um, so I picked a mixer to do redo the, we used to be friends single. And I kept calling. And then that was, you know, we got home maybe in November, in early November from that couple months of the fall in, in New York city. And, uh, and I was calling our A&R guy at Capitol and calling the president, like, what's going on? I want to hear this remix. I want to hear the single. Is it remixed yet? And they go, gonna, gonna, we'll let you know. We'll let you know when we're going in. Mm. And then late January, I finally get a call back from our new A&R guy, not the guy who signed us. He had, he had been let go or quit because he was frustrated and angry all the time about the new president who was, you know, an idiot, an actual dumbass, arrogant, mistake-making, blundering, dumb shit. And uh, I get a call from our, our new A&R guy, who also arrogant, dumbass, um, and he goes, your record's done. The new mixes are all done. Your record's done. It's going out. It's going to press. Excuse me? The, the radio mixes. No, they remixed the whole record. Fucking hell. Yep. So no way. Fortunately, uh, fortunately, he had asked me who to get as a mixer. And do you remember where's your head at? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I wanted that mixer, right? <laughs> so, um, so who was that? Jeremy Wheatley. Now he's not a okay. he is not like a stylist or anything. He's not going to take something that's uncool and like, you know, carve it up and chop it up and turn it into something cool. He's not a visionary like that. He's just a fucking great mixer, right? Yeah, you got to hand him some cool stuff, and we did. Um, the and so we ended up with a really great record out of it, but not as cool as as the Urban Russell Elevato mixes. I mean, not even remotely in the same league as that. 
Um, it was a lot more normal, but it was cool enough because we had laid down some really cool sounds, and the songs are really very straightforward, and they're they're no bullshit, you know. So the record is very good. Although Nick Rhodes, who we had done a bunch of post production with, we did a, a good several weeks with Nick in in London. Um, had taken it upon himself to do remixes of two of the songs. And so he utterly ruined two of my favorite songs. Um, one called I Am Over It and one called Scientist. And if you can find the original version of that record, those two songs um, before the remixes are... They're, you know, maybe two of the greatest pieces of work my band has ever done. They're certainly two of the greatest pieces, if not the two greatest pieces of work we've ever done. But um, That's so funny. And they got, they got hammered. I mean, they are just, <laughs> so they are truly, I, I find them truly embarrassing. You know, when they come on, I just get kind of sick to my stomach and like, I hope, I hope people are talking while those two tracks are on. They're so subpar to what, the you know my band has set ourselves up to be you know our minimum yeah. amount of acceptable flaw and you know inconsistency is 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 way higher than these two pieces of silliness you know and um, mm. but otherwise i would say we escaped we escaped that debacle um, better than any band I've ever heard of who got their record taken away and mixed without them. Because it, it used to happen all the time. Up until 13 Tales, between that period of time of music school and, and working those jobs and starting Dandies, you know, had you, looking back in retrospect on those years, had you learned a lot, you know, up until that 2000 point? We put out our first, we got signed to Tim Kerr Records in 94. Um, and then put out our first record in 95. And basically all I was, all we were trying to do was learn how to play together live. That was it. I was trying to learn how to write songs, how to complete them. Um, and uh, After all those years of preparation as well. Well, I was not really preparing for this job because I was a drummer. This is my first band. I did not know how to, I could not, I had never had a guitar with a guitar strap. I had never stood up and played guitar. I had never <laughs> sang into a microphone and heard it, heard my voice come out of a speaker at my feet pointing up at me before that yeah. whole, I mean, that was what we were learning, you know, and I would give up and I'd go, I'll come down and practice by myself. And Peter would just stand there with that look, that Pete look and go, no, you're going to put your guitar back on and you're going to stand there and you're going to sing and we're going to do it over and over again. You know, we'll turn down if you need us to. You just need to ask. If you want more of your vocal in the monitor, you just need to ask. Count it off. Let's go. And he just forced me like, you know, and he had never been in a band before and he was the teacher. So he was, yeah. he was the backbone of the thing, you know, he was really making sure this worked. He, 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 you know, he wasn't going to let me bug out or anything. Um, but so that was what all the learning was till, you know, till then I, I had been in bands where I was in charge enough of doing the videos that when we, when we 
I had a great filmmaker as a singer in, in an earlier band. And he, so I, I had learned a lot about that. Um, so I made the dandy's first video and I had a $500 budget to make a video and I knew what to do. And so that one is called TV theme song and it's still on YouTube. Uh, and, great. and I just, you just have to do what you do with sounds uh, in a recording, you fuck with them and you fuck with them and you crank on them and you distress them and you tighten them back up. And, and, and that's what you have to do to get images to be exciting or mentally stimulating and or stimulating to the eyeball, you know, uh, you've got to crank on them. So if you watch the video, it won't look, it doesn't look that f- freaky. But man, let me tell you, it took a long time of rerunning the stuff. I had to get a Fisher Price toy camera, um, figure out how to play the thing back on my TV, and then get spray paint black cardboard, tape it around it because I needed a fisheye lens to get it to look cool. No way. I didn't even know you could do that. Then uh, that's seeing outside the frame of the TV. So I need to make the TV frame black bigger, you know, and like how to f- record that back into the VHS cassette pl- recorder player, you know, and it was just all these kinds of things. And then find a friend who had a friend that edited fish in the great Northwest. And so he had access to an <laughs> editing bay and I then went over there and it was only maybe eight blocks from my house. So I could walk over there whenever he had a two hours in the studio and nothing to do. He'd go, I can do it right now. So I would walk down there and we would edit for two hours. And finally this thing is done for the $500 budget. Our label sends it to MTV, which um, at that time owned the world. MTV had made, musicians as important as athletes, politicians, movie stars. It was, you know, I think that was about when they had decided that they didn't want apartheid to be in South Africa anymore. MTV had decided that, gotten everybody, everybody to gang up. The hugest political press press blitz maybe in history, well, since, you know, getting us to join World War II to come in and save your asses as we say over here, don't know if that's true, but that's what we say from the tiny tyrant. Um, but I, I sent, they sent off this video and MTV played it two weeks in a row on their hip 120 minutes video show. And they played it at the top of midnight two weeks in a row. And that was it. It was, you know, we had, we had, record labels lining up to fly in, take us out to dinner, fly us to LA, fly us to New York, party us down, charm us, get us to sign with them. So that was then became the learning curve. We still have to have part-time jobs. Pete and I, at that point, I'm working, I'm doing a, a day or two a week at the Big Hippie Repair, working on cars. And he had gotten me to do mobile too. So I could I could drive somewhere and check out someone's car and go, yes, your engine has seized up. You know, you're going to have to get it towed to the shop. Blah, 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 blah. You know, there's 20 bucks. Okay, cool. That took me half hour, you know. 
uh, I was doing that. We're still roadieing for the swing band on Friday and Saturday nights. Um, and what, oh, and Pete and I are chopping wood now as well. For a <laughs> um, How did you get into chopping wood? Uh, his parents own a bunch of property up on the hill here. And so all their neighbors own property up on the hill too. And so, you know, Pete just called up, you know, his parents want us to chop some wood. Then the next door neighbors who have the, you know, the seven acres next door to them want us to chop some wood. So it was just sort of this, right. you know, the people that have, you know, own eight acres and stuff like that. They got a lot of wood to chop, you know. So we would do it. Yeah, funny. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Did you realize at that point, you know, having made the video that got on 120 minutes and the label thing started to happen, I mean, seems to me it might not be so obvious to you but you know it's obvious to me like how resourceful you were of yourselves and you know I wondered if you were you know were you aware of that at the time did you know like yeah this is our art and we're going to control it yes absolutely absolutely we have never recorded in a studio we've never gone into a professional studio we always built our own studios and recorded our records on our own terms then went into a real studio, but would rent the studio from like midnight to 5 a.m. to mix mm. it. And, you know, find an engineer who, a mixer that was good enough that wanted the gig, knew that we were making real work that was going to end up being known on an international level, which is not easy to do in Portland, Oregon, um, in 1995. But we did it, and and we got great, you know, we got pretty pretty great records out of it. Yeah. The first record is pretty great, you know, the white cover, the Dandy's Rule Okay. Um, yeah, and then, they all sound great. And then the next one, Come Down, you know, we, we did in a double-wide trailer um, that had been, you know, decked out with a mixing board and some, some muffly squishy stuff on the walls um so then you know in that one i went and mixed with chad blake who had done chibo motto and soul coughing and all these amazing sounding records um and that was come down and uh, then they can't be lost on you that like during like kind of the nuclear blitz of the music industry in the last 20 years do you think having that kind of foundation has been your survival like the the reason why you've survived? The reason we survived for the last 20 years, kind of after the, well, last 15 years after the, the crash of us and of guitar music and, and jangly guitar music and kind of mm. our thing, the, the reason we survived is because when I was making $3 million a year, I bought a quarter of a city block 
and put film production and music production, um, a live performance venue. I've got a wine bar in there. So that place pay, pays for itself by, you know, having, I have, you know, like if I, if the ballet, Oregon Ballet Theater, you know, needs to have a fundraising event, they rent my space. It's beautiful. It's weird and trippy and decadent looking, you know, and then I've got a wine bar because I'm a wine collector and a wino. Um, and that, so those two places just pay for the taxes and all the stuff. I just bought the, the giant space in cash. Um, read a lot about that in interviews and read a lot about how you say you kind of bought your freedom because you know, you knew otherwise yeah. it would be taken away from you. Yeah. So owning our own place and studio is great. And I, 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 I know that actually pre uh, 2005, like the, the, in the nineties, all of that experience is what gave me the edge and it is what made it possible for us to consistently put out cool, really, really interesting, cool or edgy or whatever, or sexy or just straight up fun uh, stuff. We could, you know, really control the ball. I directed all the videos except for the David LaChapelle video. And, um, you know, and I produced all the records with some of the greatest, you know, producers and mixers uh, in, of history. So I got to learn from these, these greats. So that, that helped us then. But now it doesn't, of course, help us at all because everybody knows how to run that stuff inside their computer, right? Every, yeah. Everybody's an engineer. Everybody's really good. I mean, I don't think there's a 23-year-old on earth that doesn't sit and make music for themselves, you know, with their mm. headphones on. And, you know, what we do to your average 15-year-old now sounds like what jazz would sound like to um, a metalhead in 1979, right? <laughs> it would just sound like old people music. And they would wonder why people are, why, why some other, you know, teenagers are making music like this. I mean, why would they want to sound like old people? Why are they, why are yeah. those 19 year olds playing guitars and stuff and like he's got a real drum set up there he's hitting stuff he's hitting things and there's yeah. you know there's microphones shit's feeding back why are they doing that it just sounds like old people music i mean that's kind of what but i was a kid who loved jazz you know so mm. um but it really is i think it's it's only like intellectual eccentrics that are you know that are plugging in microphones and miking up guitars and stuff. Yeah, Billie Eilish, you know, like that's all canned. You know, her whole her whole thing was she had this she has this brother that is just a pretty amazing producer. But I think it's all in the box bedroom music. Um, yeah. But right when COVID hit and they they killed the James Bond movie that was supposed to come out. Well, yeah. Those two did the the theme song and it 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 sounds like a real recording. I mean, it, it's like, it sounds big time, classic, legendary. And I must say it's the best theme song they've had. Um, you know, I think since this, since the seventies, um, I, I did like the Duran Duran. I thought the, I thought Duran Duran did a great, did a view to a kill. I thought view to a kill was brilliant. 
actually. Yeah. Um, big time and sexy and had all those brand new sort of synclavier uh, orchestra hit, you know, kind of yeah, just yeah, started yeah. huge orchestra the vibrations samples dropped in there when that stuff was new. But yeah, the Billie Eilish one, man, I, I think you can find it online. It is yeah, it's it a really powerful piece of music. So, uh, you know, I guess, you know, that, that, that might just be a special uh, occurrence for that legendary franchise. You do, you make a real epic piece of music for that. You do not sit at home and go, bloop, 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 you know, and then, and then, you know, sing something about the title of the song. Like you, you go in and you do it, but it, it certainly does. It certainly made me feel good that, you know, these, these two that have, you know, made such a bang out of bedroom music. uh, Yeah. Actually. But I, I knew that dude was great. I mean, I've listened to enough Billie Eilish to know that that, that dude is serious. He's a great producer. Did you did you know? Do you reckon you know? Fifteen years ago, were you pretty fully aware that you know you were? Maybe it's a stupid question, isn't it? Because music's always changing. But were you? Do you reckon you were aware like how much it would change? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I. You know, it had started in the late two thousands. So our our last record for Capital, which we got you know, we wanted to get off of Capitol because they had taken our record away and remixed it without us. So the next record we made was Auditorium or Warlords of Mars. And that was our, we got to get off Capitol record. And so the first song is 10 minutes long. The second song is nine minutes long, right? It just, it's, it's just a, a, a real, let's just see how far we can go. You know, let's, yeah, let's, let's not do anything like even we have ever done it before. And let's just make sure that, you know, we make the most powerful thing we can, the most extremely unimitatable thing. And let's make sure it does not sound like the trend, which was headed towards, which was in the can music, you know, bedroom music was, Mm. was starting to really happen. Um, So that, that was a reaction to that. And we definitely got dropped from capital and in our arrogance, we really thought oh, it doesn't matter. We're huge. We'll, we'll just do it ourselves. That's the, that's the future of music, you know, you just, and you were stable that. enough to feel like that. Yeah. We thought we could do it and we couldn't believe how much we failed to, <laughs> to once we were off capital, we, we made our next record earth to the dandy Warhols. And uh, a lot of people think that is our greatest work. I, I, I often listen to it and go, yep, that is our greatest whole album we've ever done. But we sold nothing. We had a flimsy sort of indie label that was supposed to do the marketing. And, you know, but we didn't care because we thought you'd just reach out to your, your fan base via the Internet. But mm. you can't. The world is covered with a thick gray fog of shit and you can't scream into it loud enough to be heard. Yeah. You know, you can, Yeah, it is, it is bizarre how much you need a real office with real people 
connected to other real offices all over the world with real people buying old school advertising, popping up windows and stuff, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just, and we're, you know, and then the, the hubris of these four, you know, barely hanging in there. I mean, we're drunks at that point, you know, party animals, flaky, overindulged artists. Um, great. We make great records with cool videos. You know, we're supposed to run a record label. Like what kind of idiots are we? Like, really? Did we even think for a minute what that meant? No, man, we just thought we'll do, we can do anything and we can't do anything. We can't run a record label. We can't, I mean, we, mm. it's hard. So yeah, yeah, that was the, that was the, the great downward spiral. We, we, we should have, you know, sucked it up and, and just started making electronic music, you know, it would have been a lot easier to save ourselves a lot of money and pain and uh, found a great electronic label. Cause those were the people that were coming on strong at that point and really yeah. and have taken over. So, well, now it's all back in the hands of, you know, old school giant record, but you have to be on a giant record label to get big again. It's it, it always, do you think so? It always resets to that. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly noticed, you know, that when you, you know, you see Oliver Tree, you know, cash machine, you know, and you see his face around and, and you know, and then you look at the video and it's like, okay, that's a major label video. I mean, oh, there it is. I see, yeah. Records. Yep. You know, yeah. I mean, what's, you know, what's, what's, what are the Eilishes on? What label are they on? They're on a beat. Oh, that'd be a major. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know. So if you don't want to be touring in a van nowadays, you got to get on a major label, man. Go into debt to your label because if they drop you, you don't have to pay it back. Go in deep into debt with your label if you can, <laughs> if they will allow you to. And let me tell you, they will dig in claws and heels, dug in deep into the dirt to resist you from doing it. That's why then you also sign with a big management company who can ball bust your label and, and tell them, no, you are, they're touring on a bus this time. They're flying business class this time. They have three days of rehearsal in London, um, to adjust to the, you know, the sleep deprivation that inevitably happens with traveling East easterly around the globe. So yeah, I, that's what, you know, if you've got any young bands who have that opportunity, you, you know, and they have a manager going, we don't want to go too deep into the label debt. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If it's for your <laughs> comfort, yes, you do. Have you, you been, know? have you had publishers this whole time? Because pub- a lot of artists, you know, publishing is no, their I way kept, of paying I the kept, rent. I kept, I kept my publishing. I only signed what they call an admin deal. And I, you know, I, I got great back end numbers because I believed that we were going to do really well. I didn't bet against myself, you know. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I took, I took bigger numbers of the back end, um, and no cash advance, and that's sort of my deal. Uh, that's I, smart. I, I, yeah, it was very smart. And then um, several years ago, I don't remember how many years ago, maybe I did something really stupid. I got offered a huge advance. And, uh, 
and I took it to re-sign. And I think it's taken, and I lost so much of it on taxes and withholdings. So I couldn't, I couldn't invest it uh, because they have to hold it in case you can't pay the taxes or in case you lose it. You know, it's just mm-hmm. ridiculous. So I lost a year of, of, uh, of gains on this money. And then I lost half. It was just, it, I was right. I was writer when I was, you know, 26 years old and said, no, thanks. Then I was after all that, all those years of experience, I finally blew it. And I've, I've since recovered from it. Uh, but it was hard. I mean, it was the scariest time of my life. I, you know, I, I am I going to lose my house? Am I going to lose this studio, which is really the source of, of where we can, what makes it possible for us to continue. And, uh, in a, in a mental sense of artistic freedom, we walk into the place and we are loosened up and free artistically just walking Mm. into that place makes you feel that way. So, um, yeah, it was really horror. It was really stupid. Don't, don't, if you think your band's not going to stay together, don't tell anyone and take a huge publishing advance. Uh, but if you really think you're in for the long haul and you kind of have that sense that you're, you're better than most and your band can stick together. Those are the two ways to make it in this things you need to make it in this world, you know, stick, stay together. Don't don't give up and just be a little better than most, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, Courtney, I mean, thanks so much. You know, these are real kind of long form chats and I love it because I think that's where you get the good shit. And, you know, all of this stuff that we've been talking about, you know, since the band started, since the first record came out, you know, taxes and fucking publishing and managers, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but those are all kinds of little part-time jobs within the, the role, right? Yeah. I, I, I would, those are knowing how to hire and fire managers is something I wish I had known. We, we have for about seven months now had the first real manager we've ever had. Wow. Yeah, we've always had a tour manager that, you know, was very tight and knew how to handle us on the road. So, hey, man, do you want to be our manager? You know, like, you know, this kind of stuff. Like, I don't know how to be a manager. Don't worry about it. We manage ourselves. You know we handle ourselves. But we just want Mm -hmm. you to just kind of be the point guy. Move to Portland. You know, we'll pay you, you know, X amount of dollars, you know, a good yearly salary, you know. And so we've done that. We had one great manager um, for a couple of years back in the day, but he was he was terrible at hiring employees. He was a great manager, but he would slough us off to you know some you know goofballs that were just kind of Hollywood like working here for a, a year and then worked there for a year, you know, and just yeah. they were just. You know, they were terrible. They were flaky. They were, you know, they. We had a we had one of these dudes come to us and go, "Hey, you guys, um, you know, because there's four there's four people in my band, right?" And he goes, "Hey, uh, by the way, um, the snowboard company that's giving you snowboards, uh, they they only have three for you, <laughs> you know." And I, you know, my ding ding bullshit sense goes, "Really." 
They know we're a four-piece band, do they? But they only have three. Uh, w- Did you get one? Well, I got one for myself. Yeah. No, you got okay. mine. It bring it. You know, and I was like, like yeah. as soon as the snowboard showed up, you know, I called yeah. called the 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 guy who's supposed to be managing us and said, uh, okay, get him out of my life. If I ever hear from him again, I'm gonna throttle him. Okay. Either either he goes or you go. And you all go. And that, you know, I ended up having to fire that guy anyway because it was just one clown after another. So yeah, we're you know, we we now actually have a real management company, and they're they're fantastic, Good. and our manager is awesome, and he hires and Good. he knows how to hire people to run the day to day stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned sort of Hollywood there, and I read it a couple of times in interviews that you know you you spent some time in Hollywood and you weren't digging it. I I don't know if not digging it. I think you don't dig yourself in it is, is the problem. You get there and you don't get to, you, you know, you want, maybe want to go to something, you get invited to a, this or a, that or a gala function or premiere gala premiere. And you're way back in line and like Mm. other people are walking to the front and getting their picture taken in the velvet rope clicks open for them and smiles all around and you just you can't help changing inside that you want right. that. you want that you right. know and so yeah. i wouldn't yeah, really yeah. be able to we'd have to go there and mix a record we'd have to be there for weeks and i would just i would last about a week and i i gotta go home i just gotta go home mm. for three days four days acclimate myself to myself again care yeah. about what my other poor friends care about which is great music or like i got this amazing motorcycle this 72 cb 754 for 350 bucks and all i've got to do is replace the gap the valves replace the points condenser and like like this is what life is this is what this is what's yeah. great about being a bohemian is you don't care about how much money you have. You care about how much fun you have and how much style you have doing it. Mm-hmm. I could have been yeah. poor forever. You know, I, it would be, mm-hmm. I wouldn't care as long as I didn't have a family to take care of or any of that kind of heavy shit. I would just, God, I, I remember getting into my first apartment by myself, Right. I live alone in a 390 square foot apartment, old, cool. I've painted, I've, I've sewn, I, you know, I know how to sew basic stuff. Mm. So I've made curtains between all the rooms right. that don't have doors. And, um, you know, it was Brilliant. just so cozy and beautiful. I've decorated with all my crap. I've collected, brought home animal skins from Zako Pane on the border between Poland and the Czech Republic. And, you know, like just <laughs> crazy stuff, you know, yeah, you know, a great. bed frame that I welded for an ex-girlfriend and then went and took it back when she dumped me. Yeah. And I could, I remember looking out the window and, uh, and just going, man, the old brick building that you drive inside to get gas, right? Like a New mm. York city kind of situation, like taxi, um, 
was across the street and I just sat there and I went, I could live here forever and be perfectly happy by myself. This is crazy. This is, I can't believe living on my own. You know, this is really, this yeah. is really special. And I would have been yeah. fine. That place was costing me probably 380 bucks a month back then. You know, I wow. think now I, I stopped by a month ago and said hi to those ladies that I rented from for 10 years in there. And I haven't seen them in, you know, 15, 16 years. Now they're like a thousand bucks a month, which is still cheap and would be totally worth it. You know, if, if you're not a family person, it doesn't hurt to be poor at all. Just don't live somewhere where you're faced with gluttony and overindulgence and like rich people just don't live around them. Don't be around them. You don't need it shoved in your face. Don't don't look at advertising and don't be a sucker for it, you know. And your self esteem will withstand all of this. Yeah. You know? Somebody said, uh, big writer guy said, you never when you're in New York, you no matter how famous you are, you're not famous enough. Oh, I think it was Stipe told me that. You're not. No, man. Michael Stipe in New York. No matter how famous you are, you're not famous enough when you're in New York. And that's doubly so in Hollywood. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, Courtney, thank you so much. What are you up to for the rest of the day? I'm going to work. Amazing. 30 second song. Yeah, I've got the song done. I had a horn, my horn section, who are both also wine collectors, came in last week and we were really <laughs> bad people. We <laughs> drank and ate for 12 hours it was horrifying and i'll never do that again i don't get hangovers because i drink nice wine but if you do it for 12 hours you'll you'll actually get a real hangover so so we're we're not going to do that again but um uh so i got to mix the horns and then i gotta think of something that goes with the lyrics of the song try to find some found footage or make a video or something you know just a quick yeah cool well courtney thank you so much for the chat all right cool man so there he is courtney taylor taylor of the dandy warhols on 101 part-time jobs episode 100 thank you caitlin ballard thank you fess for enabling that chat go on to 101 parttimejobs.com to have a look at the book and order it if you like thanks for listening again here's cox barrow i've been working all day for me mate on the side running around like a blue This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast.